This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To learn more or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Andrew Drinkwater from Madison, Wisconsin. The Mysteries of Udolpho, Volume 2, Chapter 4. And poor misfortune feels the lash of vice. Thompson Emily seized the first opportunity of conversing with Monsieur Canel concerning La Vallée. His answers to her inquiries were concise and delivered with the air of a man who is conscious of possessing absolute power and impatient of hearing it questioned. He declared that the disposal of the place was a necessary measure, and that she might consider herself indebted to his prudence for even the small income that remained for her. But, however, added he, when this Venetian count, I have forgot his name, marries you, your present disagreeable state of dependence will cease. As a relation to you, I rejoice in the circumstance, which is so fortunate for you, and, I may add, so unexpected by your friends. For some moments Emily was chilled into silence by this speech, and, when she attempted to undeceive him concerning the purport of the note she had enclosed in Montagny's letter, he appeared to have some private reason for disbelieving her assertion and, for a considerable time, persevered in accusing her of capricious conduct. Being, at length, however, convinced that she really disliked Morano, and had positively rejected his suit, his resentment was extravagant, and he expressed it in terms equally pointed and inhuman. For, secretly flattered by the prospect of a connection with a nobleman, whose title he had affected to forget, he was incapable of feeling pity for whatever sufferings of his niece might stand in the way of his ambition. Emily saw at once in his manner all the difficulties that awaited her, and, though no oppression could have power to make her renounce Valancourt for Morano, her fortitude now trembled at an encounter with the violent passions of her uncle. She opposed his turbulence and indignation only by the mild dignity of a superior mind, but the gentle firmness of her conduct served to exasperate still more his resentment, since it compelled him to feel his own inferiority, and, when he left her, he declared that if she persisted in her folly, both himself and Montagny would abandon her to the contempt of the world. The calmness she had assumed in his presence failed Emily, when alone, and she wept bitterly and called frequently upon the name of her departed father, whose advice to her from his deathbed she then remembered. Alas, said she, I do indeed perceive how much more valuable is the strength of fortitude than the grace of sensibility, and I will also endeavor to fulfill the promise I then made. 
I will not indulge in unavailing lamentation, but will try to endure with firmness the oppression I cannot elude. Somewhat soothed by the consciousness of performing a part of St. Aubert's last request, and of endeavoring to pursue the conduct which he would have approved, she overcame her tears, and, when the company met at dinner, had recovered her usual serenity of countenance. In the cool of the evening, the ladies took the fresco along the bank of the Brenta in Madame Connell's carriage. The state of Emily's mind was in melancholy contrast with the gay groups assembled beneath the shades that overhung this enchanting stream. Some were dancing under the trees, and others reclining on the grass, taking ices and coffee, and calmly enjoying the effect of a beautiful evening on a luxuriant landscape. Emily, when she looked at the snow-capped Apennine ascending in the distance, thought of Montagny's castle, and suffered some terror, lest he should convey her thither for the purpose of enforcing her obedience. But the thought vanished when she considered that she was as much in his power at Venice as she could be elsewhere. It was moonlight before the party returned to the villa, where supper was spread in the airy hall which had so much enchanted Emily's fancy on the preceding night. The ladies seated themselves in the portico till Monsieur Connell, Montagny, and other gentlemen should join them at the table, and Emily endeavored to resign herself to the tranquillity of the hour. Presently, a barge stopped at the steps that led into the gardens, and, soon after, she distinguished the voices of Montagny and Canel, and then that of Morano, who, in the next moment, appeared. His compliments she received in silence, and her cold air seemed at first to discompose him, but he soon recovered his usual gaiety of manner, though the officious kindness of Monsieur and Madame Connell Emily perceived disgusted him. Such a degree of attention she had scarcely believed could be shewn by Monsieur Connell, for she had never before seen him otherwise than in the presence of his inferiors or equals. When she could retire to her own apartment, her mind almost involuntarily dwelt on the most probable means of prevailing with the Count to withdraw his suit, and to her liberal mind none appeared more probable than that of acknowledging to him a prior attachment, and throwing herself upon his generosity for a release. When, however, on the following day, he renewed his addresses, she shrunk from the adoption of the plan she had formed. There was something so repugnant to her just pride in laying open the secret of her heart to such a man as Morano and in suing him for compassion that she impatiently rejected this design and wondered that she could have paused upon it for a moment. The rejection of his suit she repeated in the most decisive terms she could select, mingling with it a severe censure of his conduct. But, though the Count appeared mortified by this, he persevered in the most ardent professions of admiration, till he was interrupted, and Emily released by the presence of Madame Connell.
During her stay at this pleasant villa, Emily was thus rendered miserable by the assiduities of Morano, together with the cruelly exerted authority of Monsieur Connell and Montoni, who, with her aunt, seemed now more resolutely determined upon this marriage than they had even appeared to be at Venice. Monsieur Connell, finding that both argument and menace were ineffectual in enforcing an immediate conclusion to it, at length relinquished his endeavors, and trusted to the power of Montoni and to the course of events at Venice. Emily, indeed, looked to Venice with hope, for there she would be relieved in some measure from the persecution of Morano, who would no longer be an inhabitant of the same house with herself, and from that of Montoni, whose engagements would not permit him to be continually at home. But amidst the pressure of her own misfortunes, she did not forget those of poor Teresa, for whom she pleaded with courageous tenderness to Connell, who promised in slight and general terms, that she should not be forgotten. Montoni, in a long conversation with Monsieur Connell, arranged the plan to be pursued respecting Emily, and Monsieur Connell proposed to be at Venice as soon as he should be informed that the nuptials were concluded. It was new to Emily to part with any person, with whom she was connected, without feeling of regret. The moment, however, in which she took leave of Monsieur and Madame Connell was perhaps the only satisfactory one she had known in their presence. Morano returned in Montagny's barge, and Emily, as she watched her gradual approach to that magic city, saw at her side the only person who occasioned her to view it with less than perfect delight. They arrived there about midnight, when Emily was released from the presence of the Count, who, with Montagny, went to a casino, and she was suffered to retire to her own apartment. On the following day, Montagny, in a short conversation which he held with Emily, informed her that he would no longer be trifled with, and that, since her marriage with the Count would be so highly advantageous to her, that folly only could object to it, and folly of such extent as was incapable of conviction, it should be celebrated without further delay, and, if that was necessary, without her consent. Emily, who had hitherto tried remonstrance, had now recourse to supplication, for distress prevented her from foreseeing that, with a man of Montagny's disposition, supplication would be equally useless. She afterwards inquired by what right he exerted this unlimited authority over her, a question which her better judgment would have withheld her, in a calmer moment, from making, since it could avail her nothing and would afford Montagny another opportunity of triumphing over her defenseless condition. By what right? cried Montagny with a malicious smile. By the right of my will. If you can elude that, 
I will not inquire by what right you do so. I now remind you, for the last time, that you are a stranger in a foreign country and that it is your interest to make me your friend. You know the means. If you compel me to become your enemy, I will venture to tell you that the punishment shall exceed your expectation. You may know I am not to be trifled with. Emily continued for some time after Montoni had left her in a state of despair, or rather stupefaction. A consciousness of misery was all that remained in her mind. In this situation, Madame Montoni found her, at the sound of whose voice Emily looked up, and her aunt, somewhat softened by the expression of despair that fixed her countenance, spoke in a manner more kind than she had ever yet done. Emily's heart was touched. She shed tears, and, after weeping for some time, recovered sufficient composure to speak on the subject of her distress, and to endeavor to interest Madame Montagny in her behalf. But, though the compassion of her aunt had been surprised, her ambition was not to be overcome, and her present object was to be the aunt of a countess. Emily's efforts, therefore, were as unsuccessful as they had been with Montagny, and she withdrew to her apartment to think and weep alone. How often did she remember the parting scene with Valancourt, and wish that the Italian had mentioned Montagny's character with less reserve? When her mind, however, had recovered from the first shock of this behavior, she considered that it would be impossible for him to compel her alliance with Morano, if she persisted in refusing to repeat any part of the marriage ceremony. And she persevered in her resolution to await Montoni's threatened vengeance, rather than give herself for life to a man whom she must have despised for his present conduct, had she never even loved Valancourt. Yet she trembled at the revenge she thus resolved to brave. An affair, however, soon after occurred, which somewhat called off Montagny's attention from Emily. The mysterious visits of Orsino were renewed with more frequency since the return of the former to Venice. There were others, also, besides Orsino, admitted to these midnight councils, and among them Calvini and Varese. Montagny became more reserved and austere in his manner than ever, and Emily, if her own interests had not made her regardless of his, might have perceived that something extraordinary was working in his mind. One night, on which a council was not held, Orsino came in great agitation of spirits and dispatched his confidential servant to Montagny, who was at a casino, desiring that he would return home immediately, but charging the servant not to mention his name. Montagny obeyed the summons, and, on meeting Orsino, was informed of the circumstances 
that occasioned his visit and his visible alarm, with a part of which he was already acquainted. A Venetian nobleman who had, on some late occasion, provoked the hatred of Orsino, had been waylaid and poniard by hired assassins, and, as the murdered person was of the first connections, the Senate had taken up the affair. One of the assassins was now apprehended, who had confessed that Orsino was his employer in the atrocious deed, and the latter, informed of his danger, had now come to Montagny to consult the measures necessary to favor his escape. He knew that, at this time, the officers of the police were upon the watch for him, all over the city. To leave it at present, therefore, was impracticable, and Montoni consented to secret him for a few days till the vigilance of justice should relax, and then to assist him in quitting Venice. He knew the danger he himself incurred by per permitting Orsino to remain in his house, but such was the nature of his obligations to this man, that he did not think it prudent to refuse him an asylum. Such was the person whom Montoni had admitted to his confidence, and for whom he felt as much friendship as was compatible with his character. While Orsino remained concealed at his house, Montoni was unwilling to attract public observation by the nuptials of Count Morano, but this obstacle was, in a few days, overcome by the departure of his criminal visitor, and he then informed Emily that her marriage was to be celebrated on the following morning. To her repeated assurances that it should not take place, he replied only by a malignant smile, and, telling her that the Count and a priest would be at his house early in the morning, he advised her no further to dare his resentment by opposition to his will and her own interest. I am now going out for the evening, said he. Remember that I shall give your hand to Count Morano in the morning. Emily, having ever since his late threats expected that her trials would at length arrive to this crisis, was less shocked by the declaration than she otherwise would have been, and she endeavored to support herself by the belief that the marriage could not be valid so long as she refused before the priest to repeat any part of the ceremony. Yet, as the moment of trial approached, her long harassed spirits shrunk almost equally from the encounter of his vengeance and from the hand of Count Morano. She was not even perfectly certain of the consequence of her steady refusal at the altar, and she trembled more than ever at the power of Montoni, which seemed unlimited as his will, for she saw that he would not scruple to transgress any law if by doing so he could accomplish his project. While her mind was thus suffering, and in a state little short of distraction, she was informed that Morano had asked permission to see her, and the servant had scarcely departed with an excuse before she repented that she had sent one. In the next moment, 
reverting to her former design, and determining to try, whether expostulation and entreaty would not succeed, where a refusal and a just disdain had failed, she recalled the servant, and, sending a different message, prepared to go down to the Count. The dignity and assumed composure with which she met him, and the kind of pensive resignation that softened her countenance, were circumstances not likely to induce him to relinquish her, serving, as they did, to heighten a passion which had already intoxicated his judgment. He listened to all she said with an appearance of complacency, and a wish to oblige her, but his resolution remained invariably the same, and he endeavored to win her admiration by every insinuating art he so well knew how to practice. Being at length assured that she had nothing to hope from his justice, she repeated in a solemn and impressive manner her absolute rejection of his suit, and quitted him with an assurance that her refusal would be effectually maintained against every circumstance that could be imagined for subduing it. A just pride had restrained her tears in his presence, but now they flowed from the fullness of her heart. She often called upon the name of her late father, and often dwelt with unutterable anguish on the idea of Valancourt. She did not go down to supper, but remained alone in her apartment, sometimes yielding to the influence of grief and terror, and, at others, endeavoring to fortify her mind against them, and to prepare herself to meet, with composed courage, the scene of the following morning, when all the stratagem of Morano and the violence of Montoni would be united against her. The evening was far advanced when Madame Montoni came to her chamber with some bridal ornaments which the Count had sent to Emily. She had, this day, purposefully avoided her niece, perhaps because her usual insensibility failed her, and she feared to trust herself with the view of Emily's distress. Or possibly, though her conscience was seldom audible, it now reproached her with her conduct to her brother's orphan child, whose happiness had been entrusted to her care by a dying father. Emily could not look at these presents, and made a last, though almost hopeless, effort to interest the compassion of Madame Montoni, who, if she did feel any degree of pity or remorse, successfully concealed it, and reproached her niece with folly in being miserable concerning a marriage which ought only to make her happy. I am sure, said she, if I was unmarried and the Count had proposed to me, I should have been flattered by the distinction, and if I should have been so, I am sure, niece, you, who have no fortune, ought to feel yourself highly honored and shew a proper gratitude and humility towards the Count for his condescension. I am often surprised, I must own, to observe how humbly he deports himself to you, notwithstanding the haughty airs you give yourself. 
I wonder he has patience to humor you so. If I was he, I know, I should often be ready to reprehend you, and to make you know yourself a little better. I would not have flattered you, I can tell you, for it is this absurd flattery that makes you fancy yourself of so much consequence, that you think nobody can deserve you. And I often tell the Count so, for I have no patience to hear him pay you such extravagant compliments, which you believe every word of. Your patience, madame, cannot suffer more cruelly on such occasions than my own, said Emily. Oh, that is all mere affectation, rejoined her aunt. I know that his flattery delights you and makes you so vain that you think you have the whole world at your feet, but you are very much mistaken. I can assure you, niece, you will not meet with such suitors as the Count. Every other person would have turned upon his heel and left you to repent at your leisure long ago. Oh, that the Count had resembled every other person then, said Emily with a heavy sigh. It is happy for you that he does not, rejoined Madame Montoni, and what I am now saying is from pure kindness. I am endeavoring to convince you of your good fortune, and to persuade you to submit to necessity with a good grace. It is nothing to me, you know, whether you like this marriage or not, for it must be. What I say, therefore, is from pure kindness. I wish to see you happy, and it is your own fault if you are not so. I would ask you now, seriously and calmly, what kind of match you can expect, since a count cannot content your ambition. I have no ambition whatever, madame, replied Emily. My only wish is to remain in my present station. Oh, that is speaking quite from the purpose, said her aunt. I see you are still thinking of Monsieur Valancourt. Pray get rid of all those fantastic notions about love and this ridiculous pride, and be something like a reasonable creature. But, however, this is nothing to the purpose, for your marriage with the Count takes place tomorrow, you know, whether you approve it or not. The Count will be trifled with no longer. Emily made no attempt to reply to this curious speech. She felt it would be mean, and she knew it would be useless. Madame Montoni laid the Count's presence upon the table on which Emily was leaning, and then, desiring she would be ready early in the morning, bade her good night. Good night, madam said Emily with a deep sigh, as the door closed upon her aunt, and she was left once more to her own sad reflections. For some time she sat so lost in thought as to be wholly unconscious where she was. At length, raising her head and looking round the room, its gloom and profound stillness awed her. She fixed her eyes on the door, through which her aunt had disappeared, and listened anxiously for some sound, 
that might relieve the deep dejection of her spirits. But it was past midnight, and all the family except the servant who sat up for Montagny had retired to bed. Her mind, long harassed by distress, now yielded to imaginary terrors. She trembled to look into the obscurity of her spacious chamber, and feared she knew not what, a state of mind which continued so long that she would have called up Annette, her aunt's woman, had her fears permitted her to rise from her chair to cross the apartment. These melancholy illusions at length began to disperse, and she retired to her bed, not to sleep, for that was scarcely possible, but to try, at least, to quiet her disturbed fancy, and to collect strength of spirit sufficient to bear her through the scene of the approaching morning. End of Volume 2 Chapter 4